Part 2, Chapter 5, Section 4 of Chance by Joseph Conrad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Chance, Part 2, Chapter 5, Section 4. This was, you understand, the voyage before Mr. Powell, young Powell then, joined the Ferndale. Chance having arranged that he should get his start in life in that particular ship of all the ships then in the port of London. The most unrestful ship that ever sailed out of any port on earth. I'm not alluding to her seagoing qualities. Mr. Powell tells me she was as steady as a church. I mean unrestful in the sense, for instance, in which this planet of ours is unrestful. A matter of an uneasy atmosphere disturbed by passions, jealousies, loves, hates, and the troubles of transcendental good intentions, which, though ethically valuable, I have no doubt cause often more unhappiness than the plots of the most evil tendency. For those who refuse to believe in chance, he, I mean Mr. Powell, must have been obviously predestined to add his native ingenuousness to the sum of all the others carried by the honest ship Ferndale. He was too ingenuous. Everybody on board was, exception being made of Mr. Smith, who, however, was simple enough in his way, with that terrible simplicity of the fixed idea, for which there is also another name men pronounce with dread and aversion. His fixed idea was to save his girl from the man who had possessed himself of her. I use these words on purpose because the image they suggest was clearly in Mr. Smith's mind, possessed himself unfairly of her, while he, the father, was locked up. "'I won't rest till I have got you away from that man,' he would murmur to her after long periods of contemplation. We know from Powell how he used to sit on the skylight near the long deck-chair on which Flora was reclining, gazing into her face from above with an air of guardianship and investigation at the same time. It is almost impossible to say if he ever had considered the event rationally. The avatar of de Barrel into Mr. Smith had not been affected without a shock. That much one must recognise. It may be that it drove all practical considerations out of his mind, making room for awful and precise visions which nothing could dislodge afterwards. And it might have been the tenacity, the unintelligent tenacity of the man who had persisted in throwing millions of other people's thrift into the Lone Valley Railway, the Labrador Docks, the Spotted Leopard Copper Mine and other grotesque speculations exposed during the famous barrel trial, amongst murmurs of astonishment mingled with bursts of laughter. For it is in the courts of law that comedy finds its last refuge in our deadly serious world. As to tears and lamentations, these were not heard in the august precincts of comedy, because they were indulged in privately, in several thousand homes, where, with a fine dramatic effect, hunger had taken the place of thrift. But there was one at least who did not laugh in court. That person was the accused. The notorious de Barrel did not laugh because he was indignant. He was impervious to words, to facts, to inferences. It would have been impossible to make him see his guilt or his folly, either by evidence or argument, if anybody had tried to argue. Neither did his daughter Flora try to argue with him. The cruelty of her position was so great, its complication so thorny, if I may express myself so, that a passive attitude was yet her best refuge, as it had been before her of so many women. 
for that sort of inertia in woman is always enigmatic and therefore menacing. It makes one pause. A woman may be a fool, a sleepy fool, an agitated fool, a too awfully noxious fool, and she may even be simply stupid, but she is never dense. She's never made of wood through and through, as some men are. There is in woman always, somewhere, a spring. Whatever men don't know about women, and it may be a lot or it may be very little, men and even fathers do know that much, and that is why so many men are afraid of them. Mr Smith, I believe, was afraid of his daughter's quietness, though of course he interpreted it in his own way. He would, as Mr Powell depicts, sit on the skylight and bend over the reclining girl, wondering what there was behind the lost gaze under the darkened eyelids in the still eyes. He would look and look, and then he would say, whisper rather, it didn't take much for his voice to drop to a mere breath, he would declare, transferring his faded stare to the horizon, that he would never rest till he had got her away from that man. You don't know what you are saying, Papa. She would try not to show her weariness, the nervous strain of these two men's antagonism around her person, which was the cause of her languid attitudes. For, as a matter of fact, the sea agreed with her. As likely as not, Anthony would be walking on the other side of the deck, the strain was making him restless. He couldn't sit still anywhere. He had tried shutting himself up in his cabin, but that was no good. He would jump up to rush on deck and tramp, tramp up and down that poop till he felt ready to drop without being able to wear down the agitation in his soul, generous indeed, but weighted by its envelope of blood and muscle and bone, handicapped by the brain, creating precise images and everlastingly speculating, speculating, looking out for signs, watching for symptoms. And Mr Smith, with a slight backward jerk of his small head at the footsteps on the other side of the skylight, would insist in his awful, hopelessly gentle voice that he knew very well what he was saying. Hadn't she given herself to that man while he was locked up? helpless, in jail, with no one to think of, nothing to look forward to but my daughter. And then, when they let me out at last, I find her gone, for it amounts to this, sold, because you've sold yourself, you know you have. With his round, unmoved face, a lot of fine white hair waving in the wind eddies of the spanker, his glance levelled over the sea, he seemed to be addressing the universe across her reclining form. She would protest sometimes. I wish you would not talk like this, Papa. You are only tormenting me and tormenting yourself. Yes, I am tormented enough, he admitted meaningly. But it was not talking about it that tormented him. It was thinking of it. And to sit and look at it was worse for him than it possibly could have been for her to go and give herself up, bad as that must have been. For of course you suffered. Don't tell me you didn't. You must have. She had renounced very soon all attempts at protests. It was useless. It might have made things worse, and she did not want to quarrel with her father, the only human being that really cared for her, absolutely, evidently, completely, to the end. There was in him no pity, no generosity, nothing whatever of these fine things. It was for her, for her very own self, such as it was, that this human being cared. This certitude would have made her put up with worse torments. 
for, of course, she too was being tormented. She felt also helpless, as if the whole enterprise had been too much for her. This is the sort of conviction which makes for quietude. She was becoming a fatalist. What must have been rather appalling were the necessities of daily life, the intercourse of current trifles. That naturally had to go on. They wished good morning to each other, they sat down together to meals, and I believe there would be a game of cards now and then in the evening, especially at first. What frightened her most was the duplicity of her father, at least what looked like duplicity when she remembered his persistent, insistent whispers on deck. However, her father was a taciturn person as far back as she could remember him best on the parade. It was she who chattered, never troubling herself to discover whether he was pleased or displeased. And now she couldn't fathom his thoughts. Neither did she chatter to him. Anthony, with a forced friendly smile as if frozen to his lips, seemed only too thankful at not being made to speak. Mr. Smith sometimes forgot himself while studying his hand so long that Flora had to recall him to himself by a murmured, Papa, your lead. Then he apologised by a faint as if inward ejaculation, Beg your pardon, Captain. Naturally, she addressed Anthony as Roderick, and he addressed her as Flora. That was all the acting that was necessary to judge from the wincing twitch of the old man's mouth at every uttered Flora. On hearing the rare Rodericks, he had sometimes a scornful grimace, as faint and faded and colourless as his whole stiff personality. He would be the first to retire. He was not infirm. With him, too, the life on board ship seemed to agree, but from a sense of duty, of affection, or to placate his hidden fury, his daughter always accompanied him to his stateroom to make him comfortable. She lighted his lamp, helped him into his dressing gown, or got him a book from a bookcase fitted in there. But this last rarely, because Mr. Smith used to declare, I am no reader, with something like pride in his low tones. Very often, after kissing her good night on the forehead, he would treat her to some such fretful remark, It's like being in jail, upon my word. I suppose that man is out there waiting for you. Head jailer. Oh! She would smile vaguely, murmur a conciliatory, How absurd! But once, out of patience, she said quite sharply, Leave off, it hurts me. One would think you hate me. It isn't you I hate, he went on monotonously, breathing at her. No, it isn't you. But if I saw that you loved that man, I think I could hate you too. That word struck straight at her heart. You wouldn't be the first then, she muttered bitterly. But he was busy with his fixed idea and uttered an awfully equable. But you don't, unfortunate girl. She looked at him steadily for a time, then said, Good night, Papa. As a matter of fact, Anthony very seldom waited for her alone at the table with the scattered cards, glasses, water jug, bottles, and so on. He took no more opportunities to be alone with her than was absolutely necessary for the edification of Mrs. Brown. Excellent, faithful woman, the wife of his still more excellent and faithful steward. And Flora wished all these excellent people devoted to Anthony. She wished them all further and especially the nice, pleasant-spoken Mrs. Brown, with her beady, mobile eyes and her yes, certainly, ma'am, which seemed to her to have a mocking sound. And so this short trip, to the Western Islands only, came to an end. 
It was so short that when young Powell joined the Ferndale by a memorable stroke of chance, no more than seven months had elapsed since the, let us say, the liberation of the convict de Barrel and his avatar into Mr Smith. For the time the ship was loading in London, Anthony took a cottage near a little country station in Essex to house Mr Smith and Mr Smith's daughter. It was altogether his idea. How far it was necessary for Mr Smith to seek rural retreat, I don't know. Perhaps, to some extent, it was a judicious arrangement. There were some obligations incumbent on the liberated de Barrel, in connection with reporting himself to the police, I imagine, which Mr Smith was not anxious to perform. De Barrel had to vanish. The theory was that de Barrel had vanished, and it had to be upheld. Poor Flora liked the country, even if the spot had nothing more to recommend it than its retired character. Now and then Captain Anthony ran down, but as the station was a real wayside one, with no early morning trains up, he could never stay for more than the afternoon. It appeared that he must sleep in town so as to be early on board his ship. The weather was magnificent, and whenever the captain of the Ferndale was seen on a brilliant afternoon coming down the road, Mr Smith would seize his stick and toddle off for a solitary walk. But whether he would get tired, or because it gave him some satisfaction to see that man go away, or for some cunning reason of his own, he was always back before the hour of Anthony's departure. On approaching the cottage, he would see generally that man lying on the grass in the orchard at some distance from his daughter, seated in a chair brought out of the cottage's living room. Invariably, Mr Smith made straight for them, and as invariably had the feeling that his approach was not disturbing a very intimate conversation. He sat with them through a silent hour or so, and then it would be time for Anthony to go. Mr. Smith, perhaps from discretion, would casually vanish a minute or so before, and then watch through the diamond panes of an upstairs room that man take a lingering look outside the gate at the invisible flora, lift his hat like a caller, and go off down the road. Then only Mr. Smith would join his daughter again. These were the bad moments for her. Not always, of course, but frequently. It was nothing extraordinary to hear Mr. Smith begin gently with some observation like this. That man is getting tired of you. He would never pronounce Anthony's name. It was always that man. Generally, she would remain mute with eyes open, eyes gazing at nothing between the gnarled fruit trees. Once, however, she got up and walked into the cottage. Mr. Smith followed her carrying the chair. He banged it down resolutely, and in that smooth, inexpressive tone so many ears used to bend eagerly to catch when it came from the great de Barrel, he said, Let's get away. She had the strength of mind not to spin round. On the contrary, she went on to a shabby bit of a mirror on the wall. In the greenish glass, her own face looked far off like the livid face of a drowned corpse at the bottom of a pool. She laughed faintly. I tell you, that man's getting... Papa, she interrupted him. I have no illusions as to myself. It has happened to me before, but... Her voice failing her suddenly, her father struck in with quite an unwanted animation. Let's make a rush for it, then. Having mastered both her fright and her bitterness, she turned around, sat down and allowed her astonishment to be seen. 
Mr. Smith sat down too, his knees together and bent at right angles, his thin legs parallel to each other and his hands resting on the arms of the wooden armchair. His hair had grown long, his head was set stiffly, there was something fatuously venerable in his aspect. You can't care for him, don't tell me. I understand your motive, and I have called you an unfortunate girl. You are that as much as if you had gone on the streets. Yes, don't interrupt me, Flora. I was everlastingly being interrupted at the trial, and I can't stand it any more. I won't be interrupted by my own child. And when I think that it is on the very day before they let me out that you... He had wormed this fact out of her by that time, because Flora had got tired of evading the question. He had been very much struck and distressed. Was that the trust she had in him? Was that a proof of confidence and love the very day before? Never given him even half a chance. It was as at the trial. They never gave him a chance. They would not give him time. And there was his own daughter acting exactly as his bitterest enemies had done, not giving him time. The monotony of that subdued voice nearly lulled her dismay to sleep. She listened to the unavoidable things he was saying. But what induced that man to marry you? Of course, he's a gentleman, one can see that, and that makes it worse. Gentlemen don't understand anything about city affairs, finance. Why, the people who started the cry after me were a firm of gentlemen. The council, the judge, all gentlemen, quite out of it, no notion of. And then he's a sailor too, just a skipper. My grandfather was nothing else, she interrupted, and he made an angular gesture of impatience. Yes, but what does a silly sailor know of business? Nothing, no conception. He can have no idea of what it means to be the daughter of Mr. de Barrel, even after his enemies had smashed him. What on earth induced him? She made a movement because the level voice was getting on her nerves, and he paused, but only to go on again in the same tone with the remark, of course, you are pretty, and that's why you are lost, like many other girls. Unfortunate is the word for you. She said, it may be, perhaps it is the right word, but listen, Papa, I mean to be honest. He began to exhale more speeches, just the sort of man to get tired and then leave you and go off with his beastly ship. And anyway, you can never be happy with him. Look at his face. I want to save you. You see, I was not perhaps a very good husband to your poor mother. She would have done better to have left me long before she died. I have been thinking it all over. I won't have you unhappy. He ran his eyes over her with an attention which was surprisingly noticeable, then said, Hmm, yes, let's clear out before it is too late, quietly, you and I. She said, as if inspired and with that calmness which despair often gives, there is no money to go away with, Papa. He rose up, straightening himself as though he were a hinged figure, she said decisively. And of course you wouldn't think of deserting me, Papa. Of course not, sounded his subdued tone. And he left her, gliding away with his walk, which Mr. Powell described to me as being as level and wary as his voice. He walked as if he were carrying a glass full of water on his head. Flora naturally said nothing to Anthony of that edifying conversation. His generosity might have taken alarm at it, and she did not want to be left behind to manage her father alone. And moreover, she was too honest. She would be honest at whatever cost. 
She would not be the first to speak, never. And the thought came into her head, I am indeed an unfortunate creature. It was by the merest coincidence that Anthony, coming for the afternoon two days later, had a talk with Mr Smith in the orchard. Flora, for some reason or other, had left them for a moment, and Anthony took that opportunity to be frank with Mr Smith. He said, It seems to me, sir, that you think Flora has not done very well for herself. Well, as to that, I can't say anything. All I want you to know is that I have tried to do the right thing. And then he explained that he had willed everything he was possessed of to her. She didn't tell you, I suppose? Mr Smith shook his head slightly, and Anthony, trying to be friendly, was just saying that he proposed to keep the ship away from home for at least two years. I think, sir, that from every point of view it would be best, when Flora came back and the conversation, cut short in that direction, languished and died. Later, in the evening, after Anthony had been gone for hours, on the point of separating for the night, Mr Smith remarked suddenly to his daughter, after a long period of brooding, A will is nothing. One tears it up. One makes another. Then, after reflecting for a minute, he added unemotionally, One tells lies about it. Flora, patient, steeled against every hurt and every disgust to the point of wondering at herself, said, You push your dislike of... of Roderick too far, Papa. You have no regard for me. You hurt me. He, as ever, inexpressive to the point of terrifying her sometimes by the contrast of his placidity and his words, turned away from her a pair of faded eyes. I wonder how far your dislike goes, he began. His very name sticks in your throat. I've noticed it. It hurts me. What do you think of that? You might remember that you are not the only person that's hurt by your folly, by your hastiness, by your recklessness. He brought back his eyes to her face. And the very day before they were going to let me out. His feeble voice failed him altogether the narrow, compressed lips only trembling for a time before he added with that extraordinary equanimity of tone, I call it sinful. Flora made no answer. She judged it simpler, kinder, and certainly safer to let him talk himself out. This, Mr Smith, being naturally taciturn, never took very long to do. And we must not imagine that this sort of thing went on all the time. She had a few good days in that cottage, the absence of Anthony was a relief, and his visits were pleasurable. She was quieter. He was quieter, too. She was almost sorry when the time to join the ship arrived. It was a moment of anguish, of excitement. They arrived at the dock in the evening, and Flora, after making her father comfortable according to established usage, lingered in the stateroom long enough to notice that he was surprised. She caught his pale eyes, observing her quite stonily. Then she went out after a cheery good night. Contrary to her hopes, she found Anthony yet in the saloon. Sitting in his armchair at the head of the table, he was picking up some business papers, which he put hastily in his breast pocket and got up. He asked her if her day, travelling up to town and then doing some shopping, had tired her. She shook her head. Then he wanted to know, in a half-jocular way, how she felt about going away, and for a long voyage this time. "'Does it matter how I feel?' she asked in a tone that cast a gloom over his face. He answered with repressed violence, which she did not expect. 
No, it does not matter, because I cannot go without you. I've told you. You know it. You don't think I could? I assure you, I haven't the slightest wish to evade my obligation, she said steadily, even if I could, even if I dared, even if I had to die for it. He looked thunderstruck. They stood facing each other at the end of the saloon. Anthony stuttered, Oh, no, you won't die. You don't mean it. You have taken kindly to the sea. She laughed, but she felt angry. No, I don't mean it. I tell you I don't mean to evade my obligations. I shall live on, feeling a little crushed, nevertheless. Crushed, he repeated. What's crushing you? Your magnanimity, she said sharply. But her voice was softened after a time. Yet, I don't know, there's a perfection in it. Do you understand me, Roderick, which makes it almost possible to bear? He sighed, looked away, and remarked that it was time to put out the lamp in the saloon. The permission was only till ten o'clock. But you needn't mind that so much in your cabin. Just see that the curtains of the ports are drawn close, and that's all. The steward might have forgotten to do it. He lighted your reading lamp in there before he went ashore for a last evening with his wife. I don't know if it was wise to get rid of Mrs. Brown. You will have to look after yourself, Flora. He was quite anxious, but Flora, as a matter of fact, congratulated herself on the absence of Mrs. Brown. No sooner had she closed the door of her stateroom than she murmured fervently, Yes, thank goodness, she is gone. There would be no gentle knock, followed by her appearance with her equivocal stare and the intolerable, Can I do anything for you, ma'am? which poor Flora had learned to fear and hate more than any voice or any words on board that ship, her only refuge from the world which had no use for her, for her imperfections and for her troubles. End of Part 2, Chapter 5, Section 4